Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Goldgate. I'm Sarah Kashansky from 11FS, and in today's show, we're looking to all things, well, some things, related to AI and insurance. AI is a huge buzzword right now, and we're going to take a bit of a look at how this is, and in fact isn't, um, being used in the insurance industry. To talk about this with us, we're joined by some fantastic guests from all uh, sides of the issue. Um, one works on the AI itself, and others work in the insurance industry. So first up, we have uh, Ahmed Zidi, CTO of Catalyst AI. How are you doing today, Ahmed? (laughs) I'm doing really well. Thank you. Uh, We also have Eric Abrahamson, founder and CEO of Digital Fine Print. How are you doing, Eric? I'm great. Thank you. And uh, last but by no means least, we have Jantana Kanprakamroy, founder and CEO of Tapali. Welcome back to the show. Nice to be back. Thank you. So uh, welcome to the show. Before we start, can I ask each of you to give us a quick summary of your companies and what you do for them? Uh, So I'll start with Ahmed. Yeah, so um, Catalyst AI, we work on architecting solutions for businesses uh, to help them answer important questions and make the right decisions. So we use machine learning, computer vision, probabilistic programming, and our deep passion for solving real-world problems um, to bring like the best solutions to our customers. Some of the things that we work on, we work on things like high impact problems. So everything from, you know, optimizing yields for potatoes in a particular season in an agriculture industry to preventing suicide in transportation hotspots. And we're a very interdisciplinary team based in Cambridge. And um, we, our researchers, I believe in building our theoretical models in our labs, but actually bringing them to the real world and actually putting them into practice. Perfect. And you know, I'm going to come back and make you explain some of those terms later. (laughs) Eric, how about you? So we uh, do AI analytics for insurance companies specifically. What we look at is open data, so things from companies, house, government data sources, but also social media, things written on websites, and then use machine learning to gather insights. We then build models and sell those models to insurance companies to help small businesses. We've been running for about two years, so backed by Pentech and Niels, and we're on a great track to do more things. Perfect. Thank you so much. And Jantana, how about you? Yes, we are an insurtech platform and we offer commercial insurance on demand for freelancers, contractors and small businesses. Wonderful. So I'm going to ask you all probably the most difficult question first. As we mentioned earlier, AI is such a buzzword. It's, it comes up in buzzword bingo and every press release I receive has it in there. So can you guys give me what you would consider to be a layperson's definition of AI? What what it means to you? I suspect Ahmed, you're going to give us the most complex one. Um, <laughs> but everybody but everybody could just start with that and then and then we'll, you know, progress from there. Right. So um I guess in in a layperson's view, I think AI is any automatic decision-making process. And I think in the industry, AI is typically used to refer to things like machine learning or deep learning. Um, Machine learning is essentially an automatic way of writing a program where you don't have to explicitly define the rules. Uh, And deep learning is a variation of machine learning, uh, which relies on things called neural networks. Deep learning is the idea that you don't actually have to manually engineer your features. So you don't have to decide what's important and what's not. Uh, Whereas machine learning, typically, you have to decide what's important and what the very variables are. But going back to what AI really means, like philosophically or historically, uh, like the term was first coined in 1950. um, And the idea was that it refers to any computational or any software or hardware solution that mimics the way that humans behave. Um, What they mean particularly is thinking and reasoning. Um, And I might sound negative here, but in my opinion, I don't think we have any real AI technology in the world at the moment. Okay, that's a great place to start. Uh, Eric, what does it mean to you? 
I think I want to build on that. It's definitely about imitating human behavior, but often we've come much further when it comes to getting computers to imitate human behavior than we can even think. There's a fantastic YouTube clip called um, Classical Music Made by a Computer, where they took a deep learning algorithm to listen to all Mozart compositions and then made variations of Mozart. And even professional music professors couldn't distinguish between what was real and what was made by a computer. So I do think that we're getting there. In the terms that we define AI, we tend to do things that it would take actuaries or insurance brokers 500 years to do manually, but by using intelligent automation, then you can get to much faster results. And that's how we help the insurance companies. So slightly disagree on it. I think we have many examples of it out there, but we have to discuss more. <laughs> how about you, Gentana? Well, I think the two gentlemen kind of cover the ground for me. So uh, it's very easy for me to just agree with what they say. Um, so essentially for me, it's just a software or a program that capable of thinking just like human does without um, kind of you no know, help um, from human. So that's basically what an AI to me. And and I'll, I'll ask this question to everybody on the table as well, but whilst I'm talking to you, Jan Hanna, where, where would you use it? Because I know you recently had a piece of news about raising some money deliberately to explore the use of it within the insurance industry. Where is your particular company's um, focus? Well, um, that's two kind of uh, elements that we focus on. One is the underwriting process. And this is quite something that we like to focus on because there's a lot of needs for insurers to be able to price risk better, especially on demand. So we want to be, we want to create value for consumer by creating better products and by offering uh, um, a, a solutions where they can get insurance at no time and also reduce their cost. And the other part is the kind of consumer or customer experience size. We're talking about Shedbot here that would uh, be able to improve some of that customer experience and also allow customer to be able to access our database and get their question answers. And how about you guys? So, I mean, I'm, I'm one of the, I mean, the question that I'm asking you guys, I guess, is how are you using it? And, you know, where can it be used within this particular insurance? But then, I, you know, I'd like to broaden it up a bit as well and kind of say, well, where can it be used? Where can it make change? Even if you're not using it there right now, you know, where is the future for it? So, Sure. And maybe there's another question in there, which is when should it not be used? Um, Absolutely. Frankly, there are certain times, for example, we've seen some excellent documentaries called the Terminator movies when it shouldn't <laughs> be used at all. But uh, there are also times when, just for simplistic reasons, it's faster to use a normal regression model. So our data science team, they always question themselves, is the neural net the right thing to do in this particular situation? And often it's not. So there are certain times when there's a lot of complex data, we need to do unstructured learning, we need to look at hundreds of thousands of data points that change frequently, then you can't really do statistical regression or look at things in a static way you need to look at much more dynamically and that's when AI can be very helpful but in many other cases it does make sense yeah, absolutely. And I think it's uh, specifically when it comes to transparency, uh, neural networks are notorious for being uninterpretable, uh, so especially when it comes to understanding what your models are doing and how you're doing pricing. It's very difficult to use a neural net and have that benefit of knowing how they're coming to the price. So I guess the question there as well is kind of like, uh, you know, if, if you set if you're using it for insurance and you're, each person is getting a different price and they come to you and say, well, why is that one? You know, why is that person's insurance cheaper than mine? And you go, I don't know. Computer said so. Is that what you're referring Essentially, to? Essentially, yeah. Or, or it's, well, one of the things that neural networks do is you make no assumptions about how important each of your features are. Those are done automatically. Uh, but may, you may think that, you know, the location of the individual or how, what their age is is significantly more important than, for example, what their, um, you know, car is, for example. Um, so when you're doing the analysis for deep learning models, you're not necessarily arriving at a fixed weight that's going to be standard across 
all models. Um, it's going to be derived from your distribution of your data set. And the distribution of the data set will then determine whether or not your model is reliable. So what, what I want to say in like lay, layman's terms is different data sets will have different models, and therefore they're almost uncomparable which is something that's quite dangerous. Yeah. Which is also causing problems for insurance companies because they often come to us and we build a model and we're saying, yeah, this is how it works. And in theory, it would improve your profitability quite a lot, but you can't use it because we can't explain to the regulator why you would change your underwriting in that sense. Are you coming across that as well in your, your models? Well, at the moment, we basically just uh, at the beginning of that process, we're currently using the... Uh, um, standardized um, risk calculation with adjustment. So that's what we are using. And what we hope to be able to do with our AI is that bring in the data that we're going to include in our pricing um, algo. And over time, we should be able to kind of justify and also hopefully the regulators should be able to kind of work out that based on a statistic, our algo is actually outperform the underwriting, the manual underwriting process. I think uh, for from the regulator perspective, it's an early day to be able to bring in some of this uh, information that have never up until today used. It's going to take them time. And for us, we actually need to show. It's nearly you need to show that, okay, over time, this set of data and this algo is actually outperformed. And that's only then I think you would get that approval. But for now, um, everyone who's in this space, we all new to, to the market, bringing in data that no one else used doesn't always mean success. It's a try and learn um, for everyone, I think, in the industry. Yeah, so I mean, I think that leads us, you brought up the important point of the regulators. And I think as the industry is evolving, regulators are going to have to evolve at a faster rate because you have to foresee what the technology is going to be. Um, one of the biggest issues is evaluation of models. So not only from an academic perspective, but also from an industry perspective. So a lot of people are right now focusing on developing POCs or models that do a particular thing. And then they say, oh, right, this model is really, really great. And we have this score and we've outperformed the benchmarks, et cetera. The problem is with these models is that they might be overfitted, especially when you're using deep learning models. It's very difficult to know what overfitting is. So just to explain in layman's terms, overfitting is the idea that your model is is very specific to the data. So if it sees data that's not part of this data set, that's like out of sample or from a different distribution of data, then your model completely fails. Um, that's where I kind of come to this new point, um, which is, I think, an important shift in people developing models for AI in the industry. Uh, they should really look at things like uncertainty quantification. So this is like most commonly associated with like people like Neil Lawrence, who's um, an Amazon, or like Carl Rasmussen, who's part of Prowler. So they're academics who've worked uh, a lot on un understanding the uncertainty of models. And this is particularly important when you're doing analysis, because you know, all right, this is the result that I've got from my model. How certain am I This is that this is the price? So um, let's say you're entering a new space. Now, in insurance, you've, you've created a new sort of platform or new product you know, with a new distribution of data. You still want to know if your model's certain in that scenario. Um, an easier way to look at it, if you port this over to, let's say, uh, robots. So you train your robot in a simulated environment, so they know how to act in different stimuli in the environment. But if you put them in a new environment, they may come across something they've never seen before. So the model then needs to know that I'm uncertain about this decision, and therefore like the easiest way to prevent it is to delay action. Mm -hmm. So things like that are extremely important to think about when you're doing things. Yes. I think from the regulatory perspective is the 
consistency because obviously as we are allowed to create our own uh, risk model, we need to have a way to streamline those so that we can assess and benchmark that against another. So it's important for them to kind of uh, create some sort of guideline for us in terms of the data that we can use, what is reasonable data, uh, how we collect them and uh, the parameter of our risk calculation, for example, so that at least um, you can benchmark one insurance to another instead of us coming up with our own way of calculating risk, which may or may not be the realistic outcome of the risk. So, I mean, we've talked quite a lot there about sort of the caveats around it, if you like. I mean, and one of the things we've touched on there is, okay, price. So maybe we get more accurate pricing using AI. Um, What other areas are there insurance where this has applications? I I completely understand that, you know, it, it could have applications everywhere or nowhere, depending on many other things. But for, you know, as an example, we've seen quite a lot AI used in claims. So particularly if you're looking at car damage, because it's that kind of the, the image recognition technology, which again, it's kind of, you know, one of those areas people talk about a lot. Where, where, is that an area that you think this has proper application? And where else could it be used in, I guess, as I said, it can be used everywhere, but in the foreseeable future? Yeah, the guys at Shift AI have been doing some great job on claims and fraud detection. And they have some interesting case studies out there I think everybody in the industry should read. We focus more on distribution. Mm-hmm. So helping commercial insurance companies find the right type of customers, recommend the right type of products, and being able to anticipate needs and be able to fulfill them in better ways. And that can come through with marketing, come through with uh, product distribution, sales, many different ways. So we focus more on the front end of that process. And we do that by, for example, analyzing every company in the UK and see what risks they have so we can help them in new ways. So many applications are out there. So, so for you guys, it's actually more about, uh, I suppose, two things. One, more personalized products for your customers, but also um, better targeting for those insurance companies who, um, and we will definitely get onto this because we always do about price comparison websites, uh, you know, maybe finding a better way to find the right customers for you. That's right. And they all come together because if you have a better product offering, if you can be very granular and say, we seem you just enter a new market that was mentioned on page 55 in this booklet that you wrote that nobody would ever read, but with AI you can read everything like that, then suddenly you can be much more granular when you start communicating with your customers. And how about you, Gentana? Well, um, because we sell our own products, so for us, it's all about improving our products, um, creating flexible products for consumer, and also add value um, in terms of, uh, you know, reduces the time that customer would have to spend on the our website and also um, the cost. We hope with our AI, we would be able to reduce some of those costs by price risk better. Um, I mean, Ahmed as well, I don't know if you can talk a little bit to that image recognition example I made there. Is that is that um, a realistic future case? You know, we talk about personalization and distribution on this side. Yeah. So how about you know, more practical applications maybe? Yeah, I think it's a good point. Um, there's a company called Tractable. They do something like this. And uh, they use image recognition to identify and predict car claims. And I think that's a huge space because if you think about the amount of operational, uh, proportional operational um, resources that are allocated to claims, it's a significant amount in companies. Uh, so finding ways to do that uh, is extremely important. And, and image recognition is definitely one way. Um, there are other ways to do this as well. Like uh, people are now using like drones and image recognition combination to do assessments of building structures, um, especially in areas like where the buildings are in remote areas. Like let's say, for example, you're uh, reinsuring or underwriting a building in in Africa, um, the process of doing that would require you to send an agent that you've authorized to all the way to Africa to actually do the analysis. Uh, similar like technology can be used to sort of augment that and uh, reduce the cost of claim processing. Also going down to actually just from 
beyond just actually gathering the data about the claims, there's also a lot of technology that can be used to automate the process of claims. So once you actually get the assessment, you might want to have an automated way of processing that claim. And in those scenarios, you probably don't want to use anything like machine learning. You probably want to use something like a rule-based system that can handle discrete actions um, to sort of process that claim and, and, and reduce that time. That, that is one of the things that I'm sure everybody here can touch on as well. When I hear AI, I nine times out of 10, I'm like, this is if statements, isn't it? It's an if, if yes, then X, if no, then Y. And then I think that's what you, you know, rules, rules-based automation. I mean, is um, is that something that you come up against as well? You know, particularly, Eric, you, you use the word AI, to, you know, you use that term to describe yourselves. Do you um, struggle to explain which bit of AI you're using and how you're using it? Because I think a lot of the problems we have here are kind of to do with the terminology. It's often the case. But then when we go into case studies, when we show what we've actually done, people start seeing, aha, so that's how it works. One example was not to get to a discrete scenario, but more probability of finding renewal dates for companies to figure out when they need new insurance. And that was something that we had to do on a completely blank piece of paper basis. What would we need to look at? What would be the indicators? And can you get to a probability score? And we managed to narrow that window down to about 40 days. So we know exactly when it's going to be. And that helps insurance brokers, of course, when they're going to distribute. So many times. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, today we, our platform is not yet based on AI, um, uh, but we are going to be building in, you know, kind of machine learning platform like Chatbot, for example, is one of the things that we're going to be implementing. So you may be uh, uh, talking to uh, Taplibot over the next few months. So we hope to be able to bring some of that. But uh, the underwriting process is something that I guess you won't see it for a while because not only we have to build it, test it and until we know that it could uh, do the job well enough for us to be able to pass FCA requirement, <laughs> only then we would be able to um, kind of use it effectively. So it's interesting. I mean, and what you suggested there as well as an incremental introduction of different types and the use of these different types of AI as well. I think what everybody has touched on here, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that AI, wherever it's used right now in insurance, is complementing humans and helping humans. There is no way we are yet just going to let the algorithms run with it. Maybe with some exceptions. So uh, they used IBM Watson to replace an entire claims department for a Japanese insurance company. So it has happened already. But I think that the term human-enabled AI is both more positive and it's a better way to be working with the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the same here. The, the idea is to reduce some of the cost for us as a kind of the smaller um, organizations uh, by having you know a more robust but to be able to do some of those analytics um, better than human does. But we don't expect that process to take over human anytime soon. We will still have to be there to monitor the process. And um, so AI, through AI, I think is probably a, at least a few years from now. Yes. Yeah, I would say probably not even in our lifetime. Um, because, I mean, some things that are, machine learning things are really great at, and, and, and we pointed to that, like uh, image recognition, facial recognition, things that we thought, Every time when we have the, the community, the AI community goes to solve a particular problem, it turns out it's actually less complicated than people think. So um, using facial recognition to identify individuals, pretty good at doing that. But there's certain simple, trivial things that models are completely unable to do. Um, and I have a bias here because I, I work in natural language uh, as a researcher, but things like co-reference resolution. So that's the idea that, for example, if I'm Obama, or let's say 
in this scenario with Donald Trump. And uh, so I'm, um, you know, I'm the U.S. president. I'm also the chief and uh, like the commander in chief, uh, but I'm also Donald Trump. And those are all referring to the same person. However, machines are not able to distinguish between that. Uh, if you give it a sentence and say, you know, who is the commander in chief or who is the head of state? It's very difficult for the systems to do that. And um, uh, those are trivial things for humans. So uh, when it comes to things like bots or um, things like uh, natural language interaction tools, uh, we have to be very careful whether it's worth the cost of losing a customer because the process of actually getting it right is extremely, extremely difficult. But it's an important one to tackle, right? Because if you think about the insurance industry, about like 90% of premiums are collected from agents or some sort of like first or second party agents. Um, and in being able to reduce that to some extent would be like a huge cost reduction. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's what we see, um, whether it's insurance or throughout the financial services industry, is that um, one of the first places that this sort of technology is being applied is in customer service, because it is it can help the humans, it can make them more efficient, and, and you will need fewer of them, um, much as we dislike the idea. And, and another thing that we talk about quite a lot on this show, and I thought it'd be interesting to get your perspective, particularly, uh, Jantani, you were talking about new uh, types of data and new sources of data, is where sort of like new devices and connected devices fit into this because we talk about connected devices all the time we've just done two shows one on health insurance and one on life insurance and everybody every second sentence involved the word fitbit we probably be careful we're not becoming an advert for them um but you know the idea of i guess it's a sort of a, a, a broader question but when you're talking to ai you know how much are connected devices and new sources of data making the use of ai possible um, and how and how you know important is it? Well, I reckon this question probably would be better asked by Eric because he is our expert on <laughs> nice. this one. And yeah, so <laughs> but having said that, and I mean from Tapley perspective, have access to relevant data and enough data for us to be able to build AI is essentials. And at the moment, we are looking at the various sources. Of course, um, um, connected device is also very exciting because it's uh, collected all sort of information about customer, about their behavior, lifestyle, which could factor that into our pricing model. But at the moment, um, we don't know how much of that could be used for our purpose yet and whether we can collect them and how, yes. So with GDPR, we haven't even, you know, kind of start to, to work out um, the, the level of data because what we need is quite granular data about nearly individuals as opposed to just high level. High level may be useful for uh, making high level assumptions, but to, to price individual risk um, is very difficult to have that high level of, of data. But I'm sure Eric have a lot more to add on this point. I'm going to give a specific example. So I'm a customer of Vitality. And there, instead of using Fitbit, you can sync your phone. And you can take all the steps that it measures every day and then link it to your statement. And they uh, share. They make sure that they bribe you to do it. So I get a free cup of coffee every week. And for that, I'm selling all my personal data. We uh, had Vitality on the last <laughs> week, actually. He was explaining that. Yeah. <laughs> and people opt into it and people use it. So imagine the kind of data asset they're sitting on. They have the number of steps for all people and all the health insurance claims and they can start doing so much more interaction and interesting data to be able to do better research, better prevention, better activation, especially for elderly people who should be staying active longer. So there are huge amounts of opportunities. In commercial insurance, we see smart factories, we see cars, fleet insurance is going to be completely disrupted when we start looking at GPS in all the cars. So it's a bright future for much more granular data, but you need broader systems, you need better visibility of that data. And that I think is what all of us are, are working on to enable that for the industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, connected devices is just another additional modality in your models. So getting accurate information from um, various resources. So 
I guess there's a few things here. So firstly, if you have connected devices, then you have real-time data about individuals, which allows you to have real-time risk predictions, um, which can be quite useful. Um, there's pros and cons here. You might be able to identify your exposure um, as an insurance company or as a customer, you might be able to get a real value uh, real price premium that's based on your actual risk. But there's other aspects you have to consider, right? So one of the things that we've worked on at Catalyst um, is we've developed a driver engagement technology that models, uh, that uses your phone um, for bus drivers to identify how engaged they are when they're driving. And that can be used by insurance companies to identify, you know, a particular driver behavior, but it can also be used to prevent people from doing things. So insurers are always trying to delay their payouts. Um, and these are some possible ways of doing that. But I guess the thing that we have to be concerned about is the more connected we have, or we are, the more risk of cybersecurity threats. Um, and um, the technology for cyber is, I mean, there's a lot of people working on IOTs, uh, especially at the Cambridge Computer Lab, where they specialize in this space. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of understanding the interrelations between all these devices and um, whether individuals feel secure and safe. I mean, that kind of leads us on to um, another question, which is about, does AI have an image problem? Like, if you're talking about, you know, uh, we, you, you mentioned the Terminator. I didn't even have to prompt you when you mentioned the Terminator. Of course, um, I mentioned Terminator. <laughs> so that it doesn't happen. We need to be aware so we can prevent it. So, do you, I mean, the thing is, is the, is the average consumer afraid of the term AI? Are they going to be reticent? Um, I, I, you know, this is just a general, quite a broad question. But um, if you're going to be, if it's going to be implemented throughout, in some ways throughout, or at least companies are going to tell you it's implemented in some ways throughout so many things, mm. is that a problem we need to address? I think that today people are perhaps uh, almost a bit absurdly upset about the AI and are worried about it because they've seen the risks in movies like Terminator, but they haven't seen the benefits yet. They can't quantify it. It was the same thing with electricity in the beginning. People could see the risks. There would be sparks flying out. You could see thunder. That's the risk. They couldn't see the benefit yet because they didn't have light bulbs in their homes. But when that happened, when we electrified the world, America, every everybody started becoming more positive about electricity. And today it would be obscene to think that, yeah, we should get rid of electricity because it can be dangerous. So we'll find a way to adapt to it. Jeff Bezos has an amazing TED talk on this from uh, 2001 that's really worth watching. And eventually, I think we'll get some adoption of this new technology like we always do. Let me remind you about an incident um, but released by Microsoft and what happened to that. I think AI could potentially amplify the worst part of human behavior. And that's basically something that we need to be concerned about. And that means that we need to set some guidelines about what we are building. We need to be responsible. Um, and also how we use um, the data that we collected is important, I think. Yeah. I mean, am I this something you think about all the time, I'm yeah, guessing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two problems, right? So uh, we should probably separate the two. The first one is the data and the data privacy, uh, which is one concern, and the other one is the AI itself. So um, let's start with the AI bit. Uh, I think a lot of the fear is uncertainty. So whenever there's uncertainty in the world, people are either excited or scared. And I think in this scenario, if we say that, look at the people who are scared, it's mostly to do with not really understanding what's happening. Um, so, I mean, I build these models day in and day out. This is what I do for a living. And, and I can tell you how frustrating it is because how bad they are. Um, and uh, they don't work as well as you think. And if we're going back to like the 1950 de definition of AI, which is what most people are implicitly thinking, is like, you know, a, a system able to think and reason. Um, you know, it's not even clear if we'll ever be able to get there. Like there's no, no one really knows that. Um, so I don't think that, me personally, and I think most academics would agree with me, uh, that I don't think we have anything to fear when it comes to AI technology. On the other hand, data, I think there's a lot of things to fear around data. We'll be terrified. Yeah, we should take, <laughs> absolutely. I think there needs to be a regulation in place to ensure that um, customers' data are, are kept um, and owned by them. 
Um, and there needs to be a lot of things, uh, policies and regulations in place to ensure that. So on that side, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, especially with connected devices and social media as well. Uh, so that fear, I think, um, and that issue needs to be addressed. And there needs to be like media PR around that to kind of demystify what's really happening in the regulations. I think there are some examples of people working on this. So Professor Max Tegmark, uh, who's been working on the future of humanities institute, has been looking at what happened with biology when realized that as technology, it could be pretty scary. Maybe people can just bioengineer Ebola viruses in their basements and spread it out. So the industry and academics and everybody got together and created uh, checks and balances and roadblocks and made sure that this technology didn't fall into the wrong hands. So he's arguing, and I agree with him, that same things should happen for AI because we simply don't know what will happen if we get to a full general AI application. So that's what we need to keep an eye on. So, I mean, that kind of leads into the idea that is it easier for companies like uh, yourselves, um, you know, the uh, Tapley and, and Digital Fine Print to use AI and to integrate AI because you're smaller and you can kind of hold it contained or, or spread it throughout your, your business than it would be for somebody like Aviva to go, Aviva's going to use AI and then, you know, not quite sure how that would happen how that would happen or how you'd implement it through your business. So I'm just wondering, is that kind of argument, is it easier for InsureTech to do it than legacy players? Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. I'm just wondering what your opinion is on that when it comes to AI. Um, certainly the implementations. I mean, the smaller you are, the more agile you you are, so you can implement things quite easily. And also I think to the top, it's easier for you as a founder to be able to say, you know, like um, how you want to build your AI and being responsible is something that could easily be done because the CEO usually making decision. But in a larger organization, you may have smaller subset uh, department that doing all of this and then you may have completely different value at the top. So how, how do you... F- you know, kind of feed your value and oversee that process. It's harder for bigger organizations to implement this type of uh, technology. I think Aviva specifically have been coming a long way and what Mark Wilson is having as a vision is just groundbreaking in the industry. But I think they still need help because they are doing many different things. They have an existing business to take care of. They have many people who are right in there and they need somebody to be focused 100% on the one specific solution. That's really what startups are all about. We find one overlooked problem and we focus all our energy and don't do anything else until we make it work. And that's why it's such a good way of collaborating between the incumbents and the startups. So that's why we're here to help and that's why we want to be engaging with Taviva and many others in there. Yes, of course, you said in the middle. So you, you know, it's easier for you to do it than go and take it to Aviva and say, actually, we've done this for you. Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, Ahmed, do you work with do you work with companies that are trying to implement it? Or is that not really something that you, you would do? Um, in particular in the insurance industry? Well, ge- or generally, because yeah. there's always a question, you know, is it easier to go with smaller than bigger? And, you yeah. know, there are benefits on, and uh, pros and cons on both sides. Yeah, so we do. We work with uh, like mammoth sides, legacy, ancient companies that um, have systems that are completely archaic. And uh, honestly, the bulk of the work is there. Most of the reasons why companies like Aviva, I suspect, I'm not familiar with their technology, uh, would be the fact that they have legacy systems. They're systems that cannot, they're not made to communicate. They're not made to do data science on so there's a big sort of um uh, issue right now and, and and i know there are people thinking about it but more people need to be thinking about this problem is that how do you you're everyone's talking about building ai models but how are you going to actually put in production how are you going to actually connect it to your database systems how are you going to deploy it how are you going to ensure that it's efficient a year down from like a, a year from now like was your model become like uh the example that you mentioned with microsoft where it just learns r- random rubbish or is it something or offensive of, rubbish exactly yeah. <laughs> Or is it something that's still of value? Um, so that 
that architecture needs to be put in place. I know that there's companies like banks that are thinking about this actively, um, but more people need to be thinking about that. Um, I also think that um, data is the chicken or the egg problem, right? Like, do you create a company that's ground up technology based, but then you have the issue that you don't have the data that you need to build these models? Or do you work in synergy or co-develop with a company like Aviva and develop models that work together? I think that's probably the best way to go. Uh, companies should find a way to do some way of doing an, a data ecosystem amongst insurers that they can mutually benefit from each other's data and um, allow niche fin, uh, insure tech players to uh, focus on niche areas that they're unable to do. So that, that's kind of partly answer my next question, which is what I always I always ask people at the end, and they, they sort of look at me in panic. But like, what what's the future of AI and insurance then? So I'm just touched on some some various kind of elements that we could be seeing and where people should be going. Uh, you know, what do I, what does everybody else think? Or you know, even is anything further you want to talk about, Ahmed? Well, I mean, like um, the reason why Tapley exists as a system is to be able to um, at some point kind of replacing some of the legacy system that insurers are suffering from. Um, and purely because our technology is based on the latest technology, we can easily kind of rebuild, we can easily remodel um, our internal process. And that's basically essentially what would uh, help many of the large organizations to offer better product because a lot of what they're trying to do, they're trying to innovate, but most of the innovation only happen on a small part of their business. They cannot do it across the globe, and that is a bit of a problem. Um, so what we're trying to do is to build a completely new uh, platform that would allow us to capture the entire value change of an insurance, and that's basically what Tapley is all about. So yeah, from distribution to you know like kind of pricing and claim process and the payment system, all of that in one single place. I love these future questions because then you can be a little bit visionary and thinking in the future. <laughs> you, you, and, can, uh, you can be as visionary or as cynical as oh, you like. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to be super visionary, uh, almost to the irritating point where my team starts complaining about me. Uh, we tend to focus on the end user and to us the end user is not the insurance company, not even the broker or not anybody technical is going to be using it. It's the small business owner who will get a better quality insurance to be covered for more things, have better visibility on why he's paying or she's paying what they're paying for their insurance policy and be able to protect their business. One in two small business in the UK is underinsured. If there is a £50,000 hit against the balance sheet, two out of three businesses would go into bankruptcy. So small businesses are extremely vulnerable and don't get the right support or protection from the industry today. So our vision for the future is to use AI to bridge that gap, solve underinsurance problems, working with Hiscox on that, and making sure that we can help the industry help the small business owners much more. And so, so it's we've got kind of um, enabling you to handle uh, uh, to create an ecosystem to create a platform. Um, we've got kind of like more personalized, um, tailored solutions. I'm sure, Ahmed, you have all sorts of thoughts on this one. <laughs> I guess on a high level, you've covered personalization, and I think there's also instantaneous access to insurance. Um, so there's increased ability to do that. If you're applying for insurance and you're not a healthy person, then it's it's hard for you to get instant access to insurance. Having a wider range of customer uh, acceptances online instantaneously is something that I, I think is going to become a norm. There's also the fact that, I mean, there will be reduced use of agents. Um, people will be able to access the customers directly. I, I really hope that there's going to be a data ecosystem. I really hope that there'll be some sort of information symmetry amongst players, which will allow um, the insurance to focus more on the customer as opposed to the prices. Um, and they'll really 
make those price margins made like razor thin and the way that companies will differentiate themselves will be how quick you can get your insurance how wide their product offerings are how quickly they can serve you what their customer service is like which are the things that i think are more user centric so actually that kind of we didn't touch on it today but that is almost the answer to the price comparison website problem you know right now it's all based on price and but if you actually can properly stand out and say we really are better suited to you because xyz and we really are better suited to you over there because of x exactly. then that's a better industry for everybody actually yeah. yes yes it's all about you know kind of looking out for consumer uh, about um, solving their pain points and most consumer have three pain points either they can't get insurance or if they can get is at the price that they can't pay or the convenience or you know quicker way for them to get insurance so it's kind of the three element of being convenient pricing and availability of the products so that's the three main that we need to solve as an insurance but it insurance themselves also have problem. In order for them to offer this, they need big data, they need better system. Um, so that is something that we can, you know, as a uh, platform, when we build this, we build with that in mind to solve both sides of the problems. Well, that's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining me today. So where can listeners find out more about you? Do you guys have Twitter handles, websites? Basically, this is your chance to, to tell people where they can find you. So I'll start with Ahmed. You can find us on our website, which is uh, catalystlab.ai, or you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, where I'm pretty active. Eric? So I used to work for Twitter, so I think I'm still on the platform. Can I have to get one? Abrams and Eric. Uh, also on LinkedIn, pretty active there, or check out digitalfineprint.com. Perfect. And Gentana? Uh, www.tapley.com. Brilliant. Um, and you can find me at Sarah Kashansky on Twitter. Next up, I spoke to John Berthels, CTO of Cocoon, about how they are using AI. I'm here with John Berthels, CTO of Cocoon. So, John, could you start off by telling me a little bit about Cocoon, uh, what it does, and what your role is there? Well, my co-founders and I started Cocoon just over four years ago. We could see this new computing environment called the Internet of Things on the horizon. And due to a couple of personal experiences, we wanted to address the problem of uh, people feeling safe at home, particularly making it easy for people to feel safe at home. So we went through a technology selection process. We decided to use Infrasound as the way we were going to detect presence in the home. It's a very sensitive uh, technology. So in order to make sense of that and to make it useful, we needed to add some intelligence to the system. And uh, what that ends up doing is the system learns the kinds of infrasounds that are normal in your particular home and learns to ignore them so that when the unusual noises occur, it can alert you, it can tell you, give you actionable information so you can uh, feel safe in your home. My role in that is the technical, I'm the software guy, so we have various different people coming together, the hardware side of things, the marketing side of things, and I did additional proof of concept, software development, and then after we took investments and built out the company, I now head up the software engineering side of Google. Perfect. Thank you so much. So my first question is one that I ask anybody when I'm speaking about this subject, and it's largely influenced by the fact that I get a million press releases every day, and in every single one, the term AI is used. Um, so before we dig into you know, how AI is used specifically in insurance and maybe how Cocoon uses it as well, could you please give me sort of your definition of AI or what you understand by it? That's a really good question. I, I come at it from the technical side of things, so I think more about... What it's, what it's capable of achieving. There's a really good quote. I think it's originally Larry Tesla, but I got it via Douglas Hofstadter, which is along the lines of, 
artificial intelligence is whatever hasn't been done yet. If you look at the history of trying to teach machines how to think, there were great challenges early on trying to t describe scenes to them, get them to react. And that te technical progress has passed landmark after landmark, computers beating humans at chess, uh, at the game of Go, recognizing written language, recognizing spoken language, computers even driving cars. But in general, there's still something people call the AI effect, that as soon as a computer can do something new, it becomes something unremarkable. It's something that doesn't require what people would call real intelligence. People tend to think of real intelligence as whatever computers can't do yet. So it's a, it's a landscape of constantly moving goalposts. And that kind of explains why it's so hard for anybody to define it. I think so. Everyone comes at it from a different direction, and in particular, depending on how much history they have in the field, they'll see the goals, the next great steps, as the, the last one. I mean, my own personal take on this is that I think intelligence, probably human as well as artificial, it's rooted fundamentally in pattern recognition. You've got a variety of sensory inputs. We have our senses, the computer has its data feed, and it's we're really making sense of those. There's a lot of detail in there, and part of packing pattern recognition is sifting the importance abstractions, the important pattern out of that mass of detail. And I think that's fundamentally what lies underneath any kind of intelligence. Some days I think that's all it is, but other days I think there are layers and layers of additional passion, pattern sensing, which add incrementally more meaning to the, the abstractions that the system is dealing with. That's how I think of it anyway. I think I think the the point you've just made is that it's a, it's almost ephemeral as a concept, right? It's very hard to grasp. But to to sort of turn the conversation a little bit towards how uh, you know that technology can be used, particularly in the insurance industry. You know, you mentioned their pattern recognition. Where do you see this kind of technology having an impact within the insurance industry, either for better or for worse? Well, with the that above working definition, the, the answer presents itself anywhere where there are potentially patterns to be discovered. Now, that could be something obvious, like um, if you give the system a vast number of details, because obviously computers are great at absorbing all kinds of details that numb a human brain, uh, a good AI could provide insights that you wouldn't expect into just the some data of those policies and claims. So it's not just answering questions that you ask it as a sort of what we used to call a data warehouse would, but also answering the questions you didn't ask. Uh, a good AI system doesn't just take direction from the programmers. It also discovers things about what's important itself. And when it makes those discoveries, it can report back on them. So that's a very general answer. The, the data feeds that you give the system could be directly related to, to the details of the policies and claims, but crucially can also include anything else we want, anything else we can correlate with those people and their circumstances. Now, that could be uh, data from the social graph. Uh, it could be behavioral data. And the richer the feed of data you give the system, uh, the more correlations it can find and the more value it can add. So it's some direct areas this could be relevant would be obviously more accurate risk assessments and perhaps uh, more accurate um, uh, detection of, or prediction of fraudulent claims. But less directly, the systems with that richer data feed should be able to pick up on patterns in a broader context. And that could lead to a, 
a better and more individual uh, understanding of the customer and thus changing the nature of the relationship between insurance companies and the customers. So it would be, I suppose to sum it up, it would be more accurate risk and also greater and better personalization. Yes, um, personalization can go beyond just the details of directly uh, policy making. The, it can start to shift the nature of the relationship between the insurer and the customer. The insurance companies will have an incentive to gather more data on their customers to more accurately inform their systems. But having done that, that broader data feed, social feed, who are your friends, where do you go, what do you like to do, what are your interests, that then allows the insurer to position themselves differently. And uh, whether it's uh, offers of a broader range of services or special offers to increase adoption or reduce churn, th that better understanding can be used to make a, a warmer relationship, not just a more person, not, not just a more detailed one, but actually shift the nature of it. And how about the cocoon particularly? How, whereabouts do you use these kinds of technologies? Primarily in our subsound system that is driven by creating a brain for each household. Every cocoon that goes out of our factory arrives, it's a bit like a, a baby bird that the first thing it sees is its mother. It's, it starts in your house with a blank brain and just starts to listen. And it listens to your house and works out what are the noises that are usual in that particular house. So it's again, it's pattern recognition. The cocoon builds up a mental model of the kind of noises and the sequence of noises that are the rhythms of your house. And it learns the rhythms of your house. And then... If something happens that's outside those rhythms, it can contact you and alert you. And what are the potential problems of, of this technology? Uh, one of the things, for example, you mentioned on the round table was the idea of, of sort of black boxes. So if that brain you've just described sees something or make and it triggers a decision that you then have to explain, you know, do you run into problems with going, oh, well, it, it made that decision itself and I actually don't know why it did it? Uh, you know, is, is that something that you have to think about when you're using these technologies? Absolutely. Um, in the broader context of all machine learning systems, as humans, depending on the environment in which we grow up uh, and in which we live, we can absorb unconscious biases. The same is true of an artificial intelligence. If you're not careful with the data you feed to it, you can effectively end up with a, a prejudiced AI. It can look at data, the data feed and draw inferences that a human would find uh, unacceptable. So any learning system, a bit like a naive child, you want to be careful to the influences to which it's exposed. You need to be sure that the data you're giving the system is one that uh, reflects your own understanding and your, your own values. You shouldn't just let it loose on the internet to read whatever it wants. And along those lines, do you... Um this is just an interesting conversation that's come up quite a lot when we've talked about AI, but when you are designing um, a machine learning or when you're training machine learning, you know, it's important as far as I understand it to have a, a, a variety of views and opinions in there. Otherwise, even if you think you're being unbiased, you end up giving it, you unconsciously give it bias. Does that make sense? Yes, exactly that. Um, as you said, they work as a black box. The uh, Part of the reason why I think it's reasonable to call these systems intelligent is because we don't understand in a very real sense we don't understand how they work 
we understand how they put together, we understand the low-level components, but the actual encoding of the learning isn't comprehensible to it. It's only it's only comprehensible to the system when it's active and processing. So we can't deconstruct that artificial intelligence and ask it, why did you think that was a good decision to make? All we can do really is control those inputs. So the curation of the data that goes in is of absolute importance. Perfect. Thank you so much. So uh, if people want to find out more about you or about Cocoon, where should they go? Do you have a Twitter handle or a website you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. We're at cocoon.life website and there you can find out a lot of detail about uh, products and how it works and any other details you'd like. So that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to all our guests for a really fascinating discussion today. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsurTechInsiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us so, so much. Uh, If you have any suggestions or feedback, please do reach out on Twitter or email podcast at 11fs.com.